if you shit on pizza box and smear it all over the place and then hang it up and you you can call that art but it's not art it's shit in a pizza box Radio Drome. Welcome to Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me as always is, well, Cecil and Peter aren't here this week. Cecil is out at a wedding because he's a tool, and Peter had things come up. He's Canadian. That thing kind of happened. So sitting in this week for what will hopefully be a deep, meaningful discussion. I can't kid myself. Hi, Fred. Hello. I come with my own commentary track. What you guys got to do is go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free power O-ring, the O is for orgasm, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, what I want to talk about tonight, Fred, is... You and I did an episode a while ago on, like, the loss of middle-class filmmaking, how everything has to be either a super low-budget movie or an asylum film, or it's got to be a $400 million Brad Pitt movie. There really is no viable middle ground anymore. You've got people like George Romero, who had gave this interview to IndieWire about a week ago, where he said, basically, he's done making films, not because he doesn't, not because he wants to be done, because he can't get funding anymore. Nobody wants to give a million dollars to make one of these movies. They either, well, you make it on 50 grand, and then we can release it to Netflix or YouTube or iTunes, or we need $100 million to make this some huge World War Z epic. If someone like George Romero can't find funding anymore, is there not a fundamental problem in the film industry itself? We've discussed this ad nauseum from many angles and the answer is yes and it's not just Romero um Max Landis talked about his own father John Landis can't get a film Joe Dante has talked about how he has I mean he's lucky he's actually made a couple but he says it's next to impossible I think his last one came from Europe the the funding uh John Carpenter infamously you know the guy is touring as a musician you know, because he can't get a job as a director. He wanted to turn that comic book, uh, Dark Child into a movie. And you're like, if you've ever seen the, the, uh, what Dark Child's about, it's a really cool idea. And John Carpenter can't get money to make it. It's very flawed and it's very weird. I think one of the reasons is, and now this this has always been an aspect of the market, so I'm not trying to be the old man yelling at the cloud specifically about the these kids in the internet doing it the non-professionals undercutting the professionals. You've got all these people who are shooting something in their backyard just with a Walmart camera, no post-production sound, no color correction, just using their amateur buddies that they dragged in off the street, using their own bedroom for the set, and they're making these things and calling them movies. And they're like, well, I'm a filmmaker. No, you're not. But unfortunately, that stuff sells. So... When someone like George Romero says, I need a million dollars, 
the investors are going, well, this guy down the street can make the same movie you can. Um, it'll be crappier, but, you know, they can make the same movie you can for a tenth of the budget that you want, and we're guaranteed to make a profit. Why should we give you a million dollars when there's a guy out there who's willing to do it for a thousand dollars? The prof the amateurs undercut the professionals. Now, in the early days of video, that was always like that. I mean, really, Troma, and I think they would gladly hold up this mantle, that was Troma at first. They were making, I mean, their budgets were bigger, they were making half-million-dollar films at a time when no movie with under a million-dollar budget was getting wide, wide theatrical distribution, and they said, we don't need that. That's what video, this new video format is for. I remember when this same argument was leveled at Troma back in, like, 1980, 82, when Lloyd Kaufman was starting out. So... It's been something that's out there, but somehow it's changed, hasn't it? My bias against, you know, like, like someone shooting on a Walmart camera. Is that, is that my bias or is this the same thing or has it changed? Well, it has changed, but I think you, we have to realize, first of all, the one thing that has not happened yet is the internet movie makers have not yet fully crossed over to Hollywood. There's a dash of that. And I do mean a dash. There's been a few that have had like a series picked up by Amazon, for instance. I think one even on Netflix. For the most part, whatever they create, if they create their own movies, it's within their own community. It's their own fan base is what I'm trying to say. That's who buys their movies. That's who supports them. You have a guy like Doug Walker who constantly thought he was really big and then he ventures away from his community to discover nobody knows who he is. I'm not trying to be mean. You know, it's happened several times. The the YouTube community, let's just call it that to make this a little more concise. The YouTube community exists within the YouTube world. It's still its own thing. I think Hollywood is trying to get a hold of it. I think Hollywood is trying to get in there. It's why you're seeing all these battles over fair use. That's a whole other discussion. I won't go into it. But I believe it's part of it. It's, it, it's part of what's coming. And they, you know... They, they want control over everything. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman's talked about television. There was a time that some of their stuff could get, like, on cable, but never on regular television because it was taken over by the Hollywood system. They were able to play their movies in certain theaters. It was taken over by the Hollywood system. They can't get their movies there. Hollywood only wants what they control, and that's why I think you get to this point where why can't George Romero, John Carpenter, Joe Dante, why can't these guys get movies? Because Hollywood knows who they are. These are men with vision. These are men that want to make movies the way they want to make them. Why does a guy, no one's ever, barely ever, Mark Webb, get to direct the next Spider-Man movie? Because they can control him. He's not a name. He doesn't have weight. He doesn't have any power. And so they pick these guys you never heard of to direct these big movies so they can dictate the terms. They can control the entirety of the situation. And it's not changing as far as these little movies. Like, let's say uh, Paranormal Activity, I think, is kind of what you're aiming at, too, when you talk the littler movies, right? Not even something like that. I mean, Well, that Hollywood's making, I mean, that Hollywood's doing. Yeah. I'm talking about all you need to do is go through YouTube. And, like, I found one that recently that was actually really fun. It was called Halloween Spookies. The stories were actually really fun, but it was shot on a consumer-grade camcorder using the shotgun mic on the camcorder. The lighting was the lighting in the living room, and the acting was clearly, well, we need a neighbor for this scene. Let's go ask our neighbors. 
why are people that have no filmmaking knowledge or experience considered filmmakers? Joe Bob Briggs went off on filmmaking equipment and, te- and you know, all the editing equipment and all that becoming so cheap should have ushered in a new era of, of unique, groundbreaking filmmakers finally being able to get their voices heard. And that's not mm-hmm. what happened. I mean, I'll play the audio, but... Basically, he's right on everything. These people are amateurs, and they think they're not. They, You need some sort of film language. You often use the term film language, and these people don't know that. They think, I've watched a lot of movies, therefore, I know film. And you well, don't. That's, that's it, and you're right. We've talked about, again, we've brought this up so many times. They don't know the basics. They they seem to uh, follow what some of you may have seen a video Obscures Lupa did on this guy called Scott Shaw. And what was the other guy's name? I always forget his other his name. Donald, Donald G. Jackson. He's Donald the guy behind G- the, uh, the, the, the Hell Comes to Frogtown movies. Right. And who at one time at least seemed to know what he was doing. And these guys coined a term called Zen filmmaking. And basically, it's literally, if you're just shooting something, you're making a movie. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's the rough shot of it. And it seems like today there's this generation of people that believe they're literally making movies just because, all right, yeah, you made something that was an hour and a half with something of a story. But I asked Albert Pune this very question when I had him on my old show. What is it? You know, Francis Ford Coppola said someday it's going to be a 14 year old girl with a video camera who's going to be the next great filmmaker. He said that back in the eighties. Why isn't that come true? That's what Bob asks, you know, or brings up in that interview. Same thing. And the rough shot of it is, and I think Albert was absolutely right. Filmmaking's hard, man. And it takes, you have to learn, you have to study, you have to, Keep making projects. You know, a lot of these guys, Carpenter and Romero and all that, they cut their teeth on other work and they got a chance to make mistakes. All right. James Cameron, who's considered a technical wizard, you know, made Piranha 2. These guys were allowed to make mistakes. These kids today, they think they make a video and they're filmmakers. And that's it. That's, that's the short answer. They, they don't think they have to study. They, they literally think they've absorbed it. Because as you said, they've watched all these movies and, oh, we know it. But see, since everybody knows what a two-shot is and a close-up and an ECU and a master shot, we're not going to do that. We're going to go against the grain and we're just going to shoot it this way, man. This is like that Zen filmmaking. It's ridiculous. Here is a quote from Scott Shaw that I think sums up all of the bullshit you just said. And I'm agreeing with you, but I mean the bullshit of Zen filmmaking. You can do anything you want and present it as film art, unquote. What he's saying is anything is art. I, I often get into discussions with people because th- they they tell me that it doesn't matter if, if I don't like a movie, it's still art. And I'm like, no, everything can't be art. If you shit on pizza box and smear it all over the place and then hang it up, and you, you can call that art, but it's not art. It's shit in a pizza box. You, just because you label something art doesn't make it art. Nor is it enabled to be deflecting of criticism. Because that's one of the things Scott Shaw loves. You can't criticize anything Zen Filmmaking does because it's art and therefore it is completely bulletproof. I'm going to play that audio right now and then we'll be back in a minute. You know, when the technology for making films got really, really cheap, I thought that was a great thing. If for nothing else, the principle of if you have a 100 million monkeys 
typing on a typewriter, you end up, one of them does Hamlet. And so I thought, just just for the sheer volume of movies, we would have a lot of great movies. It hadn't really worked out that way <laughs> because they start making the movie before they go to film school. Right. You know, and so the movies, they're not art directed and they're not, you know, they use their friends as actors. And I meet with these young filmmakers and say, you know, you know, why did you use your non-acting friends as actors in your movie? And, and they say, well, you know, I, I live in the middle of western Kansas, and we don't have any actors. I said, do you have a community college there? Yeah. They have a theater department. They have actors there. They have people who are going every day and studying how to be actors. I said, go get them. Tell your friends you can't be in my movie. You know, and, said, and is there any reason that in this scene in the, in a bedroom, there's a sock, there's a dirty sock over in the corner, you know? <laughs> said, well, yeah, because we didn't have any money, so we had to. You have to art direct your bedroom. Right. You know, it's like, so, you know, all of the mistakes and all of the bad things in filmmaking, they, they always say, well, we didn't have any money. All the things that are wrong with your film have nothing to do with money. They don't cost anything. You know, you didn't fix the script. That didn't cost you anything. Right. You know, so all these, all these excuses that we didn't have money, that doesn't really cut it. They still need to go to school somehow or get a mentor or something and know about, how to do shots and how to set up scenes and you know and and how to mostly three act structure and mm -hmm. and and screenwriting things and so we haven't had this great outpouring of uh, you know a huge number of of great of great films made with daddy's money or mm -hmm. or or made with you know the money I made working at 711 or whatever mm -hmm. and and I thought we would what i hope happens is that now that education gets cheaper, so you can go and you can do seminars on the internet and you can learn things, you know, right. and it, you don't have to spend uh, $80,000 a year going to Harvard, you know, to, or USC or NYU. In fact, you know, those NYU filmmakers that I, that I meet, or Tish, we go to Tish. Yeah. They don't say NYU anymore. I don't know what Tish is, but they... I've watched their short films, you know, I've watched their student films, you know, and they're no better than the ones at Florida State, and they're no better, you know, there used to be two film schools, NYU and USC, and now there's probably 80, 80 film schools where they can compete at any level, you know, and so um, there's no excuse, there's no longer any excuse, if you want to be a filmmaker, you better have all your shit together, right. because... Because uh, you can get it. You don't have to pay a whole lot of money, and you don't have to spend a whole lot of money to make a good film. So, um, so I hope that the genres uh, improve, and they're twisted, and they're and they're you know genre combining. I love combined genres. Right. You know, a lot of young filmmakers, what they try to do instead is, oh, I love the horror movies of the '80s, so I made an '80s horror movie. Well, don't make an '80s horror movie. I, Make, an, make a horror movie that has 80s conventions in it, but then twist it and make it right. 2016. The opportunities there, so far people haven't really taken advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Joe Bob points out, I think rather eloquently, that these people don't know what they're doing. Because, Fred, you've worked on movies. I've worked on movies. That is the, if you can't go to film school, and film schools are more prevalent now than they have ever been. They're cheaper 
now than they've ever been. But if you can't go to film school, be a PA on a movie, any movie, whether it's a Michael Bay film, whether it is the new Albert Pune film, whether it's a freaking David Dakota movie, be a PA and you will see how a film is made. That is the best education you can get. I remember when Todd Sheets, and, you know, Todd, Todd made all those direct-to-video movies in the early 90s and that, where he got his film language from, he was a PA on the set of Child's Play 3. And he said he learned more from watching Child's Play 3 get made than he could have by reading every filmmaking book that existed. It comes down to experience. Even if you're just watching the director actually do it, you're gaining experience. That's what these people don't have. As Joe Bob put it, they don't know the three-act structure. They don't care about audio. They don't care about anything. It, it, Scott Shaw has degraded an entire generation of filmmakers or potential filmmakers into thinking, anything I do is art. Therefore, you can't criticize me. No, you made shit. Well, I, I'll only disagree with one aspect. I don't think Scott Shaw did it. I don't think enough people know who the heck Scott Shaw is. I think that it's just a, it's, it's a thing that somehow has permeated the culture. It's like an excuse. It's sort of like, I guess I like to look at YouTube as these guys all, it's like a race where everybody gets the participation award. There's no personal goals. There's no striving for something better. Complacency is king on YouTube. Does that mean no one goes above and beyond? No, of course not. There are those hidden gems. The problem is, is you look at the numbers of how many people have viewed it, and they're next to none. Very few people actually try to make something better. And then the other problem is very few people look for something better. This guy, Todd Roy and Jace Hall did a show called the Jace Hall show. And it was created with the idea. Let's not just do a video game show where we just talk about the game. Everybody knows the game, you know, like everybody knows Halo. We're not going to just sit there and play Halo. They're like, Hey, let's go to the actual companies. Let's go talk to the creators. Let's go see how this stuff is done. And let's do it with a sense of humor and a sense of energy. And they went at it from a completely different standpoint when everybody and their brother was doing the exact same kind of video show. Jace Hall's show was on for a decent amount of time, but it never got the viewership. You go look at somebody doing a Let's Play, and they get millions and millions of hits just because they go, rrr, rrr, rrr. it's really sad, and it's a both-way street. There are people not striving to make better. Not a lot. Like I said, those guys did. They tried to make a very quality show. Whether you liked it or not, I mean, that's a whole other debate. But they put a lot of work into it. You can watch it and go, wow, there's a lot of work here. And Versus something like the Angry Video Game Nerd or any of these people in a reviewer-verse that sit in a room and just scream. Well, but then you, you do have some people who, who say, you know what? I might not have any money, but I have skill. Look at somebody like David Irons. Most of you people don't know his name. You will next year when his, when his first film comes out. I saw it as the film Cassette, but it's been renamed to Identity Crisis now, which is, I think, a much more bland title, but at the same time, it's much more accurate to the actual film. This is a movie shot on $2,000. That's his entire budget, $2,000. And when you watch this movie, it's full of in-camera color, beautiful camera work, really good acting, real sets, it's got proper audio. It has original music. This film looks like a $100,000 film. And when you find out it was made for $2,000, you go, now that is the kind of guy who's coming up in this generation because he cares about making it look like a movie. Because a lot of these people 
they're like, well, I can't afford the big space battle or anything like that, so I'm just going to have, like, a couple of, you know, store-bought Star Trek, Star Trek vehicles fight each other on wires in front of a blue screen because you know what it's supposed to be. It's that whole Ed Wood thing. Remember remember when the tombstones were falling down in Plan 9 from Outer Space and Tim Burton's Ed Wood? And he was like, well, people know what it's supposed to be like. This is just kind of a representation of what it's supposed to be like. And no, you have to put forth the effort. You don't get to be like Ed Wood and just go, people know they're supposed to be a cemetery and that, you know, so what, they look like cardboard. They know they're supposed to look better. I thought Identity Crisis cassette was fantastic. I never would have guessed this film cost as little as 2000 bucks. Looks better and plays better than any Doug Walker film, than any PewDiePie video, than any Angry Video Game Nerd video, than anything Linkara has ever put out, and they spent a lot more money and didn't get the results. I think that's part of the problem is they don't strive for something more. Well, they don't. That's just it. We could go back in time to a film that, you know, from when when we were coming up, that that was that movie, and that was El Mediachi, which, if you look at El Mediachi, conceptually, it's nothing all that new, okay? It's basically just a variation on the man with one red shoe, which is, you know, this guy comes into town, he's mistaken for somebody else, in this case, a hitman, and then chaos ensues. What makes El Mediachi so good is its choice of shots it's creative i mean you know he's he he gets on a wire and slides down and gets hit by a bus this movie cost six thousand dollars and this guy put it together he put energy and he made characters you like and you know the acting is a little shaky in it you know the bartender character she's not the best actor but there's so much energy in the film that you just feel drawn in. Not, not just energy, but creativity. Well, that's what I... It, it is creative. Everything. It's It's got imagination. It does things. It does things that other movies don't do sometimes with, like, ten times that budget. That's the problem. You watch the Angry Video Game Nerd movie, and I, I'm not going to try to crap on the guy. But did, there's scenes where he's got two guys talking outside his house. It's green screened outside his house. And it's like, really? I know you were dealing with a lot. I know you had a lot on your plate. Filmmaking is more than a set of excuses. And that's what I hear uh, in the interview with Joe Bob. He talked about this, and I can't agree more about how they say, well, I didn't have the money. I didn't have... There are so many great films out there that also didn't have the money. But they took the time, and they put the effort in. You know, Evil Dead is not a perfect movie, but there's a reason it is considered a cult classic today. And that's because of what he put into it. That movie does not look like what it cost. And that's the key. Imagination costs nothing. If you can't afford the one thing, and you can't put it together, create something else. Create something new. They had floating ghosts by putting a camera on a two-by-four and standing on each end of the two-by-four and walking with it in Evil Dead. That's how they created the ghost POV. Didn't cost any extra money. And it's one of the most energetic, kinetic things you've ever seen in a horror movie, to the point where Hollywood ripped it off a 100,000 times ad nauseum. That's where love comes in. That's where passion comes in. And I get this feeling that that's not where a lot of people came come from. If, I'll give you one quick story. When I worked on the movie Mosquito, I met a lot of people who were grips. And by the way, these are nice people. I'm not putting them down at all. But a lot of these guys set out to be filmmakers. And guess what? You know why they weren't filmmakers? Because they got into the business, found out how much money they could make as grips, 
and they stayed grips. And I think that's what happens with a lot of these channels on YouTube. They they make these smaller things. They got lucky, you know, like a Corridor Digital, for instance. And then that's all they want to do. They never want anything more. They say they do, but they never strive for anything more. They're making the same type of videos today that they did five, six years ago for the most part. Maybe with more money, but it's still the same basic stuff. You're taking a video game idea and doing a gag with it. And that's it. And I think that's that's part of it, too. I think a little taste of success or even just a little taste of money, and that's it. It's over. They're done. This might be because I come from an older school. You and I are both, you know, over 40, so we come from a different generation. I think the tools have changed so much that I don't want to say it makes people lazy. Okay, if if you're presented with two paths that both go to the same place, one of them will be more fulfilling, but it, you're going to have numerous obstacles to overcome, and it's going to require ingenuity to get through. Or you have another path that is straightforward, won't look as good, won't be fu as fulfilling, but will take one-tenth of the time. Which path would you choose? Today, they choose the easy path, which is CGI and After Effects. Like you mentioned, the green-screened, the obviously green-screened outdoor scene. You get that far too often. I worked on a movie that, that never got finished called Pumpkin Seeds. Uh, there, there was funding problems. We could have done some of the lighting in post-production and color corrected it. But the director had the vision. He said, I want this to look like an Argento film. I want blues and greens and red lighting. I love the fact that he said this. I don't care if it makes sense where the light source would be coming from. I want light, you know, light to just permeate this thing. So we, we had to shoot a scene in a car and you know the car was supposed to be moving but you know for for this we were just going to poor man's process something in the background which again now you would just cg something in the windows but we were going to poor man's process it they i was going to have this i was i was the dp on this film i was going to have this blue lighting coming from underneath the seat to illuminate the lady as she opens the glove box and a little pumpkin monster jumps out and starts attacking her throat we could have just lit that scene like normal and then in the computer gone and added the blue t the blue tint to it. We didn't, but we didn't have any expensive lights. So we literally took a lamp from the living room, took the hood off of it, put it under the seat, and then went to Walmart and bought a bunch of clear plastic blue bowls and put those over the light to give that, that blue lighting effect. And you know what? I think it looked better than anything I could have done in post-production and after effects with that. Look at all of the steps I had to go through to get that effect, Fred. Or you could click one button in, in, in After Effects. And I think that's part of it is they're lazy. I think the technology has accidentally bred them to be lazy, these, this current generation of filmmakers. Uh, yes, to a degree. Um, because, you know, you could put that technology in the hands of another person and they can take it beyond anything you know, these kids on YouTube are doing, and they can make something that'll blow your mind. It's it's like any other tool that exists. It's how you use it. You know, the practical way always looks better because it creates this sort of tangible thing. It's it's just a weird psychological thing. And who knows, maybe after guys like you and I are long dead, maybe that concept will be dead. I mean, it's possible. We grew up in a generation where we saw movies on the screen that had a flicker. And subconsciously, that's there forever. You know, when we're gone, maybe that concept of the flicker will long since be gone. It, it's not just the concept of practical effects, but how you use them. When you, you do digital effects, there's things called passes. Okay, a better word probably would be layering. 
essentially it's like if you add let's talk about gunfire which i hate cg gunfire but i've seen it done very well and if you take a gun and you watch most youtube videos that do cg gunfire you can always tell but mostly it just looks like somebody slapped a bright flash onto the end of a gun right that's what you see with layering somebody would take that same gun and because obviously it wasn't firing they'll they'll create a frame and they'll digitally move the slide of the gun you know so it goes backwards so they'll add that so now you got the firing and you've got the slide and then they'll add a digital bullet and then they'll take a little smoke and they'll add another layer and add a little smoke. And then they'll work on, oh, the, the flash and the light it creates and the light and you get my point though. It's a layer on top of a layer. It takes time. I've done it once. It is boring. It is tedious. You don't want to do it. The thing is when you do do it and you do it correctly, guess what? It looks pretty good. So it's the same basic principle. It's they don't want to take the time. The desire and the passion and the drive to do it is not there. That's the problem. It's it it's all there. The tools are there. There are people that can do amazing things with programs that exist today. And I'm talking cheap ones that'll make your jaw drop. But why aren't they? Laziness. And that's sad to say, but it's true. It's just laziness. And you and I both know, uh, Joe Bob Briggs said something about these guys hiring their friends to be actors. He's not wrong that that's one of the reasons it looks bad. You know, he added it along the laundry list of, you know, learning how to operate a camera and sound and he, he added it in. The thing is, is how many movies have you and I see where they did hire actors, but they weren't very good? Phantasm Ravager. The guy, uh, I don't know if this is considered a plot spoiler since it happens in the first five minutes, but the guy who steals Reggie's car is so clearly not an actor and just a friend of Don Coscarelli. And yeah. that turns out to exactly be the truth. And you're like, come on, Don, really? This guy's performance is off. You can almost see him reading cue cards. I get it. He's your buddy. He doesn't have to have this role. It's a matter of effort and care. Yeah, it's it's a matter of putting just that little extra something in. And it's amazing when you just try to do something just a little you know when i did my very first green screen effect for movie apocalypse one of the things i said i didn't i really wanted to avoid as much as possible was what i call the weatherman shot you all know what i'm saying once you hear weatherman the weatherman standing in front of the blue or green screen just pointing you know and he's dead center and i said i gotta do something to break that up a little bit so i took my green screen i put it on the ceiling now mind you i never did green screen work this was my first time ever playing with a green screen. And I was like, why not stick it on the ceiling and do a low shot, you know, looking up at me and the sky's got clouds and stuff. And just doing that little something different, little something extra, I got a lot of comments on that. And that's with a green screen. I hate green screen. But just doing something slightly different always catches people's eye. Always does. It takes just a little bit of effort and a little bit extra time, sometimes a lot more time, but that's where passion and love come in. But some people have defended, I'm just going to use the term Zen filmmaking for, for a blanket term for like these YouTube movies sure. and things like that. Okay. So I'm just going to use the term, even though it doesn't technically apply with these Zen films, a lot of them 
trying to proclaim that that they they are like rebels. They're creating a new art form. You, you hear a lot of these be like, yeah, man, I don't want this to look like a Hollywood production. I want this to look down and dirty. I want this to look amateur because it's more real, man. When you think about it, their philosophy isn't necessarily wrong because let's look at what's arguably considered the greatest movie of all time, Citizen Kane. That broke every filmmaking rule there was. It broke the rules of structure. It broke the rules of timing. It broke the rules of shot composition, of editing. Citizen Kane broke every rule filmmaking had, and filmmaking was better for it. Do you think these guys honestly think they're the next Orson Welles, or is this just a denial defense in their head going like, no, I didn't make crap. I'm, I made new art. There are those that really think they're artists. They really think that they're that good. It's delusional. Uh, I think I said to you once, it's the equivalent of those people that are tone deaf on American Idol. They literally think they can sing and they're generally surrounded by people. Oh, Bobby, you're great. You know, <laughs> you know, beautiful dreamer. It's, it's the, the equivalent of it. What can you say? There's nothing to say. Those people are delusional. And then you have those that seem to be part of this generation of like anti-comedy is an example where like, oh, we know how a joke is structured. So we don't do it that way. Oh, we know how we're rebels, man. Yeah, we're rebels, man. And it's like, okay, I'll say this. Fair is fair to try it, to do it. Why not? Right. Isn't that the nature of art in its of itself? Try something different. Try something new. Try to break the barrier you just said about Citizen Kane. Wells was told you can't do this, you can't do that, and he tried. So, okay, you tried. The problem isn't that they tried, the problem is, is they're still doing it. And it didn't work. Hey, I got an idea, let's get other people to do it so we're right. Just because you can get people to agree with you does not make it right. And that's what you're seeing on, well, how many times have you heard YouTube called a community? And it's like, I think commune might be a better word creative people go to get their ideas out there and well, you're like in theory in theory yes in practice yeah. not so much exactly and come on anybody you know we're not blowing anybody's minds here right now they can watch this stuff on youtube and everyone knows the difference between watching a movie and watching something on youtube I want to go back to the whole not knowing film language again, because I, I think, you know, like I said, you've used that term a lot, and it's the correct term. These people who don't know film language, they don't want to know film language. No matter what you think of the man's movies now, Charles Band put out a video. It's a little dated now, because it was like in 2000 or 2002, somewhere around in there. So it, it, it's kind of mm -hmm. out of date, especially because he talks about VHS for a while in it. It's called The Cinemaker Super Source. It's a five DVD set that takes you step by step, step by step from coming up with your idea all the way through selling it on an independent film level. And it is dead fucking on. You've seen it, Fred. If you can't get to a film set or a film school, this Cinemaker DVD is essential to you learning why these YouTube videos suck. All of the things you did wrong. Cause Band, again, no matter what you think of him, he's been there. He's made the amazing films, and he's made cinematic dreck. He doesn't seem to have a lot of ego in this during the host segments, because he admits, and I did a movie like that, and it didn't work. And that's what you kind of need. You you don't need everybody talk telling you, because here's one of the big deflections they always do. Anyone that tells you that your movie, your, your YouTube video is good, well, then they get it. Anyone who didn't like it, they're just a hater. No, maybe they're trying to be honest with you, prick. 
Maybe they're telling you, no, man, the audio was shit on your movie. Maybe the script was was actually really good. You shot it on consumer-grade equipment with the... I, I, I can't leave that alone. Audio is so important. You cannot use, for what you're calling a movie, the onboard microphone of a Walmart camera. You mm-hmm. cannot. No. And yet everybody seems to. There are so many times I hear the echoes, or I can hear chatter in the background that's not supposed to be there and all this, and it's like, God damn it! There's a reason dubbing and looping exist. Mm-hmm. Learn it. Use it. There are professional-grade microphones you can get for under $50 where you can seamlessly loop an entire... I, I recently saw an independent film that I never would have guessed until listening to the commentary track that there was not one bit of live sound in this movie because it was looped so perfectly. And if I can't tell, then you did your job. If But if I'm immediately drawn out going... Why are they echoing? Oh, because they're in a room with no sound dampening and they're using the goddamn shotgun microphone. You find out interesting is that a lot of European films and for for years, I still think they're doing it. A lot of most Asian movies, they actually shoot MOS, which just means without sound, mit out sound. It was a German thing. It's without sound because they know they're going to have these things dubbed anyway. And it it automatically kind of forces them to create a more visual story because they don't want to rely entirely on the dialogue now obviously this doesn't work with everything obviously okay if you're doing my dinner with andre really bad approach if you're doing a tarantino (laughs) style film kind of relies on dialogue yeah right and then you have to set up for that and even if you have to loop you might have to there are ways to approach that as well and again this is where practice comes in but the reason we call this film language is because that's exactly what it is. It is talking to the viewer. It's looking at them. And that's why when you have two people talking, you establish this guy is on the right, this guy is on the left. And the way you shoot it always has the guy on the right looking to the left, the guy on the left looking to the right. And then when you do the over the shoulder looking at the guy, you're looking over the same shoulder and so on and so on and so on. When people run towards a cabin in a horror movie, now I'm just picking a direction, but they might run left to right to the cabin. Oh no, the killer! uh, They get away from the cabin. Now guess what? They're running right to left. Because even if you don't realize it, you know, what your brain does, as RLM says, you do know these things. You... They, they're subconsciously in there that you understand, oh, that's going to, that's going away from. These are the things they don't know. These simple little details. This isn't deep, all right? This isn't you're creating art. This is technical know-how. Rule of thirds, where you make a tic-tac-toe board on the screen, you know, in the viewfinder. And the people's eye lines are at the intersecting lines and so on and so on. One third sky, two thirds earth or vice versa. These are basic rules. And I can't tell you how much it irritates me to watch these things. And they don't know these little details. And then they wonder why the image is so flat, so uninteresting. They don't understand color theory. Oh, my gosh. Look, color theory is got a lot of components to it. I don't even fully understand all of it. Okay. But I understand the basics of color theory. Uh, I just have no memory, and I can't remember what 
all the opposites are of each other. That's just because well, yeah, it, memory. I, I, I think what you're um, getting to is is what most people I've heard to refer to it as the color wheel. Right, and it's it's something that's really basic. But if like for instance, the concept of depth in a movie is very interesting. Watch a Don Bluth animated film to give you this concept. Animation's as flat as you get, right? I mean, it's shot on a cell. Literally. It's literally as flat as you get. But Don Bluth was a magician. This man made 3D movies out of his animated films, and you didn't have to wear the stupid glasses. And it's because he understands the concept of color and depth and size. And he understands how lenses are. That's what creates it. Like, if you ever see this shot of people walking towards you from on a sidewalk, and it just seems like they're walking forever, but they're not getting much closer, that's because it's a long lens that's probably two blocks away from these kids, zoomed all the way in, and it compresses the image. Obviously, a wide angle lens does the opposite of that, and so on and so on. These are basics. Basics of film language. If you ever watch a movie that's set in like a bar, check out how the background might be lit red, but the doors that you can see that go somewhere might have a blue light, a yellow light, or a green light. And then the foreground might use a natural light or, again, an opposing color. This creates depth. Again, film language. These are the basics. This is not deep stuff, man. But but people think nowadays, I'm going to go back to the technology taking away from ingenuity. I saw one of these things where they tried to get, and they didn't invent this shot, but it's the most famous, the Jaws shot. The background pulls way back and the characters in the foreground stay where they are. You know, the shot on the beach I'm talking about. I, I saw a video where I could tell that the the two act the two characters in front were shot against a green screen and they digitally zoomed back to Ugh. make the background move and I went you sons of bitches you have no idea how that shot's accomplished do you what you do is and it does take a little bit of skill so you got to practice it a couple of times what you do is and, and you can do this either moving forward or backwards you just have to be the opposite of whatever your whatever direction you want to go if you move the camera forwards you zoom out at the same steady rate which will keep the characters in the foreground but make the background move or you can go backwards and zoom in it, it doesn't matter it gets the same effect it's simple to do and it looks fantastic when it works mm -hmm. If you have to cheat and do that digitally, you are f***ing useless as a filmmaker. There's no reason you should have had to do that digitally. No reason at all. You have another one that I see all the time. Maybe it's because of all the, 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 the decade I spent as a news cameraman. One of the things we got yelled at the most in the news was something called white balancing. Whenever you're shooting something in, say, a, a living room with a big bay window in it, you'll notice how that bay window if it's not white balanced correctly, will have like a very light blue tint coming from it. Then it looks like crap. I've seen, Doug Walker does this all the time. I haven't watched one of his episodes in years, but back when I would watch Doug Walker, every time he would shoot in his house, the windows would just be blown out like this. And it's like, okay, one, you either didn't white balance, or you maybe did white balance for the inside, and you don't know how to diffuse that daylight out there. Literally, cut open a cardboard box, hang those cardboard boxes outside of what the window will see to block the light coming in, which will stop that blue effect. It takes five goddamn minutes, but you don't care. It's, I need to shoot this now. You don't care, and therefore, why should I care about what you're doing? You're a lazy filmmaker, and I'm sick of these people being called filmmakers. 
Uh, and I'll agree. I, I completely agree with you. And again, I know people are going to seem like we're on the attack for these people, but understand it's just because they're the most prevalent, the most common. There's lots of guys doing this. Okay. We're just generalizing. Remember, if they're popular and they're big, that means people are going to emulate them. And that's what we're really addressing here. We're addressing that it's sad that these are, you know, when we were growing up, all right, there was, uh, I hate saying it all that, but there was no internet, but there wasn't. And when we were growing up, the guys we were talking about were, you know, Spielberg and Carpenter and Dante and that. We started learning about guys like Dean Cundy, a, a cinematographer. You would learn and aspire to that. So, okay, maybe Frederick Fritz is never going to hit that level, all right? But doggone it, I learned a lot aiming for that. I learned a ton. This generation, they're learning from these guys, and what Josh has said is completely true. That that washed-out window effect, uh, friends and I have called it the dirty laundry shot because it's this weird, like uh, he said, off-white. It's it's a weird kind of thing. It's everything's washed out and ugly. Everything looks it's bleached. flat. Every, everything yeah. coming in from that light looks bleached. It's washed out. It's ugly. It's not attractive. It never has depth because you've just lost depth by its very nature. And I'll tell you, the opposite of this is something that's my pet peeve. I won't go too much into it because it requires a lot of explaining. We don't have that kind of time. But the new color correction. There's a the people are learning color correction, but they're using the same exact technique for every video. Yes, it makes them look brighter, they look sharper, and they look more colorful. Sometimes it's not even a bad thing. The problem, they all look the same. They shoot them the same. They color balance them the same. There's no life. It's dead. It's this weird, it's, it, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but everything has what I like to call the burnt wood look to it. Everything is like a rich mahogany kind of thing. And it, it's like, okay, yeah, that's red, but it's sort of red, if you know what I'm saying. Because what they do is they go off the white and the black, which is your basic white balance, except they're only using what the meter says. Now, this is not bad, technically speaking, but here's where we'll go against what we're talking about. Sometimes you got to go with a gut feeling. And you gotta create, you gotta give it life and you gotta give it its own identity. All these scenes are starting to look the same to me. There's no life. It's like, uh, what was it you said, Josh, to me the other day? Uh, I don't like Rob Zombie's movies, but I can tell what a Rob Zombie, like if I'm looking at a Rob Zombie movie because yeah, he, he has he, a Rob, Rob, Rob Zombie has a distinct style that as soon as you see something, you meet, you go, that is a Rob Zombie movie, or that is his style. He has a style to him. Whether you like his films or not, you can't deny there is the Rob Zombie style. Yeah, and it looks like his, and it's actually, I'll say this, I'm not a fan, I don't even want to go into it, but cinematography-wise, looks great. You look at a John Carpenter movie, within five minutes, you could probably figure it out. Maybe not the modern, but definitely the older and so on and so on. These films have a look. They have an identity. Hitchcock, all of them. And I'm not just talking shot selection, though that's part of it. It's all part of it, okay? That's the idea. It's not one thing. It's many things. It starts with a story. Then it, then if you're into inclined, storyboards. Then checking locations. And then saying, hey, this background looks amazing. And it relates to what the character is going through. And so on and so on. And that's why you choose the lighting you choose. And that's why you choose, I'm shooting in the dark. I'm shooting in the rain. I'm shooting in a house. I'm shooting behind a fence because it looks like they're caged. And so on and so on. Today, 
everything looks the same to me. Even on a technical level, there's no identity. It's got this soulless quality to it. Again, it's not that you learn these things and then just do all of them, but you learn them so you know what they are and you can make decisions to break them. Well, like I brought up that movie Identity Crisis, or as I saw it, Cassette, the movie is just filled with color. And David Irons pointed out to me, that's not color correction. That's all in-camera color because he wanted it to look real. In his words, he wanted it to look like a movie. He didn't want it to look like a YouTube video. And you know what? It looks like a movie made for 2000 freaking dollars, which also illustrates why you don't need $100 million to make a movie nowadays. You got people like Irons who can, if you gave him a million bucks, he'd give you a $50 million film. You also have this weird thing where, where these, these newer people are, in a strange way, at least with the audience, taking the place of the ones we grew up with. I mean, we have to admit, George Romero hasn't made a good movie in 15 years. <laughs> John Carpenter hasn't made a good movie in 15 years. You know, Joe Dante's last couple of films were enjoyable, but they weren't what I would call some, you know, even in Dante's top 15. We have to admit, the guys we're all emulating? I mean, Sam Raimi, he'd had almost 15 years of garbage. You look at it and you go, these people are dying off, whether they're physically dying or just their careers are. There needs to be a new generation to take their spot. I'm not a big fan of this man's movies, but I think Adam Green is one of those people. Personally, other than Chillerama, I haven't liked one of his films, but he has the passion and the ingenuity to be the next one of these guys. And we need more of them. Like, Robert Rodriguez isn't necessarily part of the new generation, but he is one of those guys that's still making inventive movies. Even if I don't necessarily like the film, he's still being very inventive and unique. We need to encourage the new generation. So I don't want to sound like we're just bitching about these kids and getting them off our lawn. I'm only going to fight for the ones that matter, though. Just because you're new and you're trying something different, if it looks like shit, I'm going to tell you it's shit. And I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, but you need a thicker skin. Do you think George Romero and John Carpenter and Joe Dante were always told they were, they were geniuses? No, they weren't. Well, and, and that's it. Everyone that you've listed, yeah, the, it, their day is over. It, it really is. I don't mean they can't ever make something, but I'm just saying their day is over. But they've got a body of work that you can't deny, okay? Of the ones we named, Joe Dante would probably be the lesser. What he's got is quite impressive. And that's the key to this. We need another generation to come up and give us that next wave. They're there. I think guys like, say, James Gunn, I think he has the chops to do it. Whether or not he will become that, only time will tell, okay? We don't know. The guys that made uh, Blue Ruin and now The Green Room, time will tell. Because there's just as many filmmakers who've made one or two good movies, and then that was it. They never made another good one. Time will tell. There's, it's an approach. It's something in the heart. Carpenter has said many a time now, he's not the angry young man anymore. It's done. It's over. And when he does something now, he likes to just try something different. That's why his films now don't look like the old ones. He wants to try something new. Fair enough. That also says that some of these filmmakers change as they get older. Thankfully, they're not like these, you know, I'm going to call them the upstarts, who are all like, F*** it, man, I'm breaking the system, F*** 
the rules, man. So I actually wonder if if somebody like a Doug Walker or or any of these people will actually make real films, not not shooting with consumer grade equipment with all of their buddies and whatnot, but actually make a movie. I mean, as much as I disliked Rob Zombie's 31, it still looked like a movie. Well, the Doug Walker projects don't look like movies. And again, it's not just about Doug Walker, but if we're going to look at him or any of these other guys, have you ever noticed, like, if you if you remember seeing a young talent, you saw something there. There was some raw, unformed, something that was interesting. I rewatched Waxworks 1 and 2 recently. The Anthony Hickox film. One of the things I thought was interesting is they're very flawed movies, especially, you know, one is the better of the two films, but it's very flawed. But I would still rather watch someone like that make a movie, like Anthony Hickox and Waxworks 1, than the majority of what I'm seeing today. Because there's still that spirit of creativity. There's that effort. I don't think Anthony ever really went on to become a great filmmaker. You know, his later stuff, he seems more like a workman now. But then again, he's older, too. So once again, we're back to that old chestnut. There's something you just recognize. I don't even think Walker's a uh, Doug Walker's a director, honestly. And I don't even mean that as a, a mean-spirited thing. He He strikes me as just someone that's like, okay, we need to get this done. Let's get it done. That's it. How much is him and how much is his brother? I don't know. So I don't consider them filmmakers at all. Whereas somebody like James Rolfe, who did the Angry Video Game Nerd movie, I feel bad saying this, and I mean that with all my heart. I saw that movie, and I thought it was just terrible. I, it, it was just awful, because this guy has such passion. If you listen to his you know, reviews and discussions of movies, not the video game stuff, not the Angry Video Game Nerd stuff, but when he talks about movies, and you can tell he's got that passion. Sort of like Eli Roth. You listen to this guy talk, he's intriguing to listen to. Yeah, too bad he has no talent behind the camera. Well, yeah, I don't even want to say no. T- I just, I'm not interested in watching the guy's movies at all. I'm just not. But it's interesting to listen to him. And I think guys like Ralph is like, and hey, God bless you. You you did make a film. How does someone with that much love, and this is what goes through my, why can't I find anything in that movie? Why can't I find one piece of it to go, well, this part of it was really great, and I can't. And that's what I think we're talking about here is there's there are people that have the drive they do have the ambition maybe even the passion but they just lack the knowledge the know-how and that certain something that we can't define like i said i think somebody like walker is different i think that's just he lives for a punchline whether or not you think he's funny that's up to you (laughs) but he his work is all set up delivery set up delivery set up delivery he's not a filmmaker i i'm not even sure he considers himself a filmmaker and if he does that's scary but the kids that are coming up that are emulating them that's the point i'm making is it's sad they're just they're not looking outside and and they're listening to these guys for their movie reviews too so they're not even finding movies on their own you and i've talked about the hunt a billion times going out and looking for movies they don't do that now they go to youtube and they trust what these people say you got to look for yourself, people, and that's it. You've got to do for yourself. you got to film for yourself. I'm 46 years old. The biggest mistake I made is I didn't write every day and shoot every day. Get some, you know, put some effort into it. Try to go beyond what you did last time and keep doing it. You want to be a filmmaker? That's what you got to do. Sitting there and sitting on your ass and watching YouTube isn't going to make you anything but fat 
and old. You have to learn. I'm sorry. No one has ever just stumbled into it. Even Kevin Smith, which a lot of people like to, you know, point to. The guy said he's been writing since I think he said he was six years old. Okay, and he, that's probably why he's a good storyteller verbally, like when he stands on a stage and talks. He can write a script. Whether or not he can film, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's another debate. But these guys have all practiced, and they've all taken chances. That's how you do it. Just sitting there and talking about it isn't going to make anything happen. Well, you know what can happen? People can contact Fred Fritz. Well, you need a Ouija board. No, I'm just kidding. I hope you don't need a Ouija board. Uh, just the movie apocalypse page. I'm sorry. I just got nothing new on that front, guys. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. Well, you can contact me and my grumpy ass at, at 1201beyond at gmail.com or my website, 1201beyond.com. Guys, literally, I say this every week, but I mean it more than ever now. Try to be a cut above. All right. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. The party starts now! Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.